Welcome to the Star Trek Academy, a podcast about the new on-screen versions of Star Trek. For the next few podcast episodes, we're looking at Star Trek Picard. This time we're going to talk about episodes four, five, and six, Absolute Candor, Stardust, City Rag, and The Impossible Box. My name is Rodney Cup. I'm the philosopher. And I'm Michael Merrick, the media guy on the Academy faculty. Our website is the Star Trek Academy.blogspot.com, and you can find links there to the various podcast sites where you can listen or subscribe. But really, the best way to keep track of our new episodes and other announcements is probably our Twitter feed at Trek underscore Academy. And we invite you to go back and listen to our podcasts about season three of Discovery, as well as the complete first season of Lower Decks. That would be a great way to get ready for the Lower Decks Season 2, which is coming in August. And you can also join us in rewatching Picard, which are the subject of this and the next couple of uh, podcasts. Right. So this podcast now is a retrospective about the first season of Picard. We're waiting for the second season, of course. We understand that will be out next year. We should note that since we released our last podcast... We've seen a teaser video for Picard season two. Yeah, how about that? Yeah, and I, I, I wanted to ask you what you think about this, Michael. It shows um, Q, and we knew that Q was coming, uh, but we also see Seven of Nine without Borg implants, and we see references to time having been broken, and Picard saying that he can save the future and that he will get everyone home. Now, what do you think about these developments? Uh, it certainly appears to be a time travel and alternate universe uh, story, alternate timeline story. Uh, it's not clear whether Q has done this, or maybe he's detected it and he's asking for help to fix it. I don't know. As time has passed, mm, he's become right. ever so slightly more responsible. So we'll we'll see. I mean, Star Trek has often done these time travel and and parallel universe or alternate timeline stories. And so that in and of itself is not new. What yeah. I am wondering about is, you know, there has been comment about how the producers of current Star Trek would love to do some kind of crossover that would feature, it would feature Picard and it would feature Burnham and it might feature Pike. It could even feature an older Captain Archer hypothetically. Right, right. Boy, that would be so, wild. And and that wasn't hinted at in this in this no. teaser, but it's not beyond the possibility. They're apparently shooting Picard season two and three together back to back. So that could be they do something completely different in season three, or it could be that there's a big cliffhanger or who knows. Oh, and by the way, if they're doing that, Giorgio could be could be part of it too. Oh, right. Uh, hypothetically, if they can make the script work. So anyway, it'll be interesting to see. It's still several months away, but we will be getting little bits of more information uh, uh, as as they dribble it out to us. I had a kind of meh reaction to this. I had just rewatched All Good Things, the TNG series finale. I just wanted to see the bit about uh, Picard's Eremotic syndrome, and I ended up watching the entire thing. I just love that episode. And this sounds kind of like what happened in that episode. And, you know, maybe I want to see something a little different and, and new. 
But, you know, I, I've been very impressed with season one of Picard. So, I mean, I, absolutely, I'm going to watch and see what they do with it. Uh, now, we're we're assuming that listeners have watched Picard by now, but we're still going to offer a brief summary of these uh, three episodes for you to jog your memory. Uh, it might be a while since you've seen it. And this time, Michael's going to handle that. So uh, go ahead and take it away. So we're talking about the fourth, fifth, and sixth episodes of the season, Absolute Candor, Stardust City Rag, and The Impossible Box. So and we'll start by saying, previously on the Star Trek Academy, we left Picard, Rios, Raffi, and Agnes on their way to Free Cloud to find Bruce Maddox. They stop along the way to pick up Elnor, a young man that Picard met as a child during the early stages of the Romulan supernova evacuation. Elnor has been raised by Romulan female warrior monks, the Quilat Milat, who practice absolute candor, and they support hopeless causes. Elnor is kind of upset with Picard for not coming back sooner, but he binds himself to Picard's quest and goes along. As they leave the Quilat Milat planet, La Serena is attacked by a space warlord's original series-era Romulan bird of prey, a fighter from the vigilante group, the Fenris Rangers, saves La Serena, but at the last second when the Fenris ship is destroyed, La Serena beams aboard the pilot, and it is, surprise, Seven of Nine. Surprised at, me. Yeah. At Free Cloud, well, we, we had seen her in a, in a trailer or two also, so we knew at some point she was coming along. At Free Cloud, Maddox is on the run after the Romulan Tal Shiar, prompted by the secret Jat Vash group, destroyed his lab, and he's captured by Bejazel, who you might kind of call a criminal entrepreneur. Picard and company are going to pull a caper in which Rios poses as a go-between, offering Bejazel an alternative to selling Maddox to the Tal Shiar. The alternative proposed by Seven of Nine is to exchange Seven who has just a fortune of Borg tech still in her system, exchange her for Maddox. Seven and Bejazel do have a history, including that Bejazel, it wasn't her personally, but one of her people essentially killed Isha, who was a Borg child on Voyager and who Seven considered to be like a son to her. But they do manage to get Maddox back to La Serena, claiming that a Fenris ship is coming to get her. Seven beams back down, kills Bejazel, and shoots her way out of the casino. Maddox uh, is in tough shape, but he tells Picard that Soji is on the artifact, the uh, derelict board cube, and he sent her there to try to uncover the plot within the Federation that caused the synth attack on Mars. But when they're alone, Agnes kills Maddox. O has programmed her, Commodore O, programmed her to believe that she must kill him to atone for her role in creating the synths that attacked Mars, but she lies and claims that Maddox was too injured to survive. At the Borg Cube, called the Artifact, Picard meets the former Borg Hugh, who we first met in The Next Generation. Narek has convinced Soji to undergo a Romulan ritual to help her remember her dreams about her childhood and about the Maddox workshop she does, helping identify where the planet is. And then Narek tries to kill Soji with a radiation gas bomb. He has romantic feelings for Soji, it seems, but his duty to the Jat Vash prevails. 
Faced with that threat, Soji's android powers activate, she breaks out of the ritual chamber, and she encounters Picard and Hugh. The Romulans are now on alert, and Hugh leads them to the Borg Queen's chamber, where there is a long-range transporter. Soji doesn't really know who to trust, but she goes through the transporter with Picard to a world named Nepenthe. Elnor stays behind on the cube to help guard the Queen's chamber as it powers down, so Picard and Soji can't be tracked, and also to protect Hugh. Elnor draws his sword, and the last words we hear are Elnor telling the approaching Romulans, choose to live. And that is a very brief summary. We left a lot of things out, of course, but uh, a brief summary to refresh our memory about these three episodes. All right, so we're going to ha- take a look here at some uh, individual elements that we found to be uh, significant or especially interesting. We could start, I guess, with the Kuat Milat, uh, as we see them in this episode. Uh, They're warrior nuns who practice absolute candor and bind themselves to lost causes. And you might remember these folks from season three of Discovery, which told us uh, more about them. That's right. Way in Picard's future, the Romulans and Vulcans, you recall, have reunited, renaming their planet Nivar. We're told that the Quilat Milat helped the two sides reach accommodation and live in harmony, or at least more or less in harmony. And in Picard, we learn that the nuns have been patrolling the roads to help keep Romulans and others on the planet from coming into conflict. And the nun essentially reprimands Picard you could not save everyone, so you chose to save no one, which is significant. Remember, Raffi had alternative plans already coming to mind, but Picard essentially said, no, I'm just going to go back to the vineyard. Starfleet doesn't want me anymore. And I think we're intended to conclude that was kind of a bad decision on his part. Yeah, Picard's getting reprimanded a lot in this series so far, and we'll say a little bit more about that later. Picard's not perfect. <laughs> Another thing I found interesting I wanted to make note of here is, um, and I find this interesting just as an ethicist, uh, when Zani tells Elnor, a promise is a prison. Do not make yourself another's jailer. Now, I think we tend to think of promises as being pretty strongly binding. You know, if you make a promise, you have to keep it. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing really wrong with insisting that somebody who's made a promise to you keep it. But Romulans appear to think, I mean, if I can generalize here, that uh, there's something unseemly about holding people to their promises. Um, and that's, you know, kind of interesting from an ethical standpoint, uh, this sort of different way of thinking about promises. Or maybe it's something unseemly about asking for promises at least within this absolute candor Quilat Milat group. But how is that different from binding oneself to a cause? Isn't that making a promise? It is. That people hold you to or that you're expected to be held to? So, yeah. I mean, Picard in these episodes continues to be kind of in a strange state of mind there on that planet called Vashti. He more or less picks a fight with the Romulan refugees. He barges into the Romulans-only cafe And then he seems surprised that the Romulans react negatively to his presence. And over the last few episodes, we've seen Picard several times just not understanding, not getting what other people are feeling. And yes, as you said, he's presented as flawed, which is a lot like, a lot unlike, I should say, his next generation persona. 
but in the same way, Starfleet as a whole has become flawed in the wake of the synth attack. Yeah, I, I do love that scene, though, uh, you know, with Picard taking that sign down and throwing it on the ground, the Romulans only sign and walking on it disrespectfully. Uh, it's consistent with his values. And in, and in that sense, it is just what we would expect from him. I think that I, I agree with you, though. I don't think, you know, a TNG era Picard would have done something quite like that. He's too diplomatic. Yeah, I, I can see him wanting to make a point, but his surprise comes from them not accepting him. I mean, he's he's the famous hero, at least the Romulans on that planet. He saved them. And he seems to think that that, that should excuse everything else. Again, he doesn't he doesn't get where they're coming from and, and really kind of seems surprised and, and taken back by it. The opening scene of Stardust City Rag is pretty gruesome. It's not Bejazel herself, but one of Bejazel's hench people is operating on Ichub, harvesting board tech, no anesthetic, and the process leaves him so injured that it leads to his death. I just wanted to say I couldn't watch most of this scene. It's just, I think it's too graphic for Trek, frankly. It is pretty graphic. Uh, it would not fly on old school broadcast television networks. The fact that it's on a streaming service maybe gives them more wiggle room, just like there's overall, there's more profanity in Star Trek these days. And note that the, the, the woman doing the operating is just interesting bit of continuity. She's looking for his cortical node. She says, where's that cortical node? But in the Voyager episode, Imperfection, each of cortical node was removed, transplanted into Seven of Nine when hers went bad. And the idea in that episode was that because he was younger, the Borg tech in him could adapt to not having the cortical node easier than Seven could. But that's another example. It's just a, a brief, you know, only a few words, but it's a mm -hmm. really pretty deep dive into Star Trek continuity. And you got to hand it to the writers and the producers for doing that. Yeah, I agree. And while we're on the topic, there's a kind of thread I'm seeing running through this. So Seven of Nine is unable to save Icheb, and he and she calls him my child. Uh, we've got Elner here believing that uh, Picard abandoned him. And again, I, they have this sort of father-son relationship with each other. Gabriel believes that uh, Rafi abandoned him and his father. We have uh, Dodge is Maddox's daughter in a sense, and he seems devastated to learn that she's died. There's a lot of parent offspring drama going on in mm -hmm. this series that I've just noticed, uh, but I'm not quite sure yet what the writers want to say about it. Well, we'll see how that plays out in the, in the remaining four episodes that we'll be looking at in future podcasts. I did find it interesting that the events on Free Cloud are, are kind of a typical caper story. Mm -hmm. And caper stories are not that common in Star Trek. Deep Space Nine did a caper episode, bada bing, bada bang, but they aren't quite that common. So maybe that's, that's a little something fresh. They had a nice uh, mention of a reference from Quark. Yep. And in this caper, Rios is going to be the facer. Uh, the candidate as a go-between, trying to get Maddox away from the Tal Shiar. 
Uh, Patrick Stewart really seemed to relish his over-the-top French accent as he posed as as the buyer. And I really like Jonathan Frakes directed this episode, mm-hmm. and he's often called in to direct the particularly important or complex episodes. And you notice the caper scenes on the planet are intercut with, yeah. I guess you'd say, flashback scenes of when they're planning the caper and the way those cut back and forth from the planning to the execution to the planning to the execution. I thought that was mm-hmm. really effective in terms of television visual storytelling. If I, yeah, and I could just add here, I, I agree. I, I thought it worked here. It was easy to follow. In an earlier episode, I'm not sure if I mentioned this, they used the same technique of intercutting uh, one scene with another. And it was the one in which Laris and Picard were looking for evidence right, yeah. at Soji's apartment. And that scene was intercut with the scene in uh, Picard's study where they're discussing the Jacques Vache. I found that hard to follow. I, I don't know why those scenes were intercut with each other. Here, though, it totally worked. I mean, I, I had no problem with it at all. Something else we could say here about the caper, the planning of the caper, Rafi uh, tells Rios, you can't do your broody existentialist routine, right? And that he has to play a different role here and he has he has to sell it. And, you know, this reference to existentialism, uh, you know, we won't talk about it at length, but, you know, the existentialist emphasizes uh, the fact that human beings are alone in this universe that has no value. The universe is indifferent and hostile towards human beings, and and each person has to find meaning in this <laughs> in this universe. And we don't know why Rios is this way yet. We will find out later. And I also wanted to make a related point here. That book that Rios has been reading, it's it's a work in existentialism. And Rios says it's a book about the existential pain of living with the consciousness of death and how it defines us as human beings. That seems to describe Picard very well now that he knows he's got this terminal illness. Yeah. And actually, technically, we do know why Rios is that way, but we haven't gotten to the episodes in which we find that out. We haven't gotten to rewatching them. So we will address that in a future podcast. Right. His captain or his yeah. uh, heroic captain. Right. You had mentioned uh, Gabriel Huang, who was Rafi's son, and Rafi leaves the ship to go see him, but he's not open to renewing their relationship. She is hoping she can start fresh with him, but he is very cold about that. Her devotion to her mission with Picard left Gabe feeling neglected, and this estrangement is part of her broken life. And there's a clear parallel in my mind to what in effect was her estrangement from Picard. Uh, The feelings that she had toward Picard in earlier episodes is similar to what Gabe feels for her here. I agree completely. There's another element of this, though, I think Gabriel contemptuously refers to this conspiracy theory, right, about the Mars attack. And there does seem to be something to that. Anyway, he says this, this, uh, her belief in this theory pulled her away from her family. And this kind of reminded me of QAnon, frankly. I mean, you see uh, stories about family members trying to deal with relatives who have become QAnon disciples. The difference here, of course, is that there really is something to Rafi's 
conspiracy theory, I think. Now, Picard notes that Raffi sees things that other people don't. Yes, I and remember that. Have you, have you ever tried to explain something that is perfectly clear to you, but that the person you're talking to just absolutely fails to get it? I mean, that happens to me sometimes where it's yeah. so clear to me that I can hardly trace my thought processes that led me to the conclusion, but someone else just absolutely doesn't, doesn't see it. And so I can, I can see that frustration uh, and I can see that working in Rafi. It's clear to her, but she can't, yeah. she doesn't, she can't point by point explain it. And that has her messed up in part. Yeah, that's a good point. Something I wanted to say about Narek's box. Now, that's obviously symbolic of Soji. And, you know, that is made explicit in this dialogue we get between Narissa and, and Narek. I think there are other similarities, though, that, that occurred to me. Narek obviously, you know, tries to kill Soji with that box, with a, with a radioactive uh, gas or what have you. Both the box and Soji, when they're activated, are potentially deadly, <laughs> right? The box is activated, Soji is activated, she breaks out of that chamber. I also think the box might be symbolic of the artifact. You know, when activated, the Borg cube, that can be lethal too, obviously. Where Narissa says that Narek is fidgeting with Soji until she pops open like this cube. I think they're also fidgeting with the artifact a bit, trying to reveal its secrets. You know, what happened when the cube assimilated the Shainer? Uh, what caused the submatrix collapse. So they're playing with that box also. And it would also explain why the writers chose a cube shape for Narek's box rather than making it a sphere or something else. I mean, for all practical purposes, it's a Rubik's cube, but with mm -hmm. different different panels, not not the colors we're used to. And we will see that he continues to either that one or a similar one, be using it. He's constantly adjusting it almost as a way of facilitating his thought processes or his, oh, his concentration. Right. So that's something that's more clear in future, in future episodes. But yeah, that very similar symbolism works, I think. I also want to note uh, Stardust City Rag. The word rag, there is a reference to ragtime music. And the actual selection they play is, it's not something that was just created for this episode. It is Solace by the very famous Scott Joplin. Joplin was a ragtime, a writer of ragtime. He died in 1917. And in the 1960s and early 70s, his music underwent a revival and is now very well respected as, as part of American music, American culture. Ragtime, and particularly Scott Joplin, came to wider public attention in the soundtrack of the movie Sting. Mm -hmm. And the word solace, the, the name of the piece, of course, is a reference to comfort and condolence. And the music reflects that. It's slow, it's quiet, has some significant pauses. And that in and of itself is interesting given the chaotic nature yeah. of Free Cloud. So I think that was not just that it's ragtime music, but that selection of that particular piece has some significant meaning to it. Yeah. Well, that's some good knowledge right there. I just got to I say. come from a family of musicians, so I have to oh, know this true. stuff. <laughs> All right, so maybe we can shift our focus here to some subtext, meaning in the episode, messages, morals, that sort of thing. 
And in The Impossible Box, the third of the episodes we're talking about this week, completes what you might call the second act of the Picard series. Soji recovers what she can of her memories about where the planet of the synths, or at least Maddox's workshop was. Narek tries to kill her in spite of apparently having feelings for her. Picard and Soji finally meet. The next episode, Nepenthe, is sort of an interlude, thinking in terms of theatrical terms, sort of an interlude. And then the three episodes after that are the final act, leading to what you might call the thrilling finale mm-hmm. of the season. And it's interesting that these episodes are structured that way. Not all TV series today that have story arcs have demarcations like that. It's more like a movie, isn't it, this season? Sort of, yeah. Uh, yeah. Or, or a play. Right. I think we are seeing another theme uh, coming to the fore here in this series. Um, and that is the idea that the perfect is the enemy of the good, or at least it can be. For examples here, Picard tells Zani, I think you made note of this earlier, that he allowed the perfect to be the enemy of the good when he was working on the Romulan rescue mission. We talked about that already. You know, after Rafi returns to La Serena, after trying to patch things up with Gabriel, Rios tells her no one gets all of it right. He's trying to help, I think, her forgive herself, maybe, uh, for how she's mucked things up. Picard also tells you that the outcomes for the XBs don't have to be perfect. And it's interesting that Maddox characterizes Soji and Dodge as being perfectly imperfect. So this is definitely a theme to the season, I think. You know, your comments remind me of Midwest American culture, where we both reside, where good enough is, oh, yeah. you know, good enough. It's good enough. It doesn't have to be perfect. It's good enough for here. You and I are in different states, but it's good enough. And sometimes good enough isn't good enough. Yep. And uh, we get Picard explicitly stating a theme that we identified in the previous podcast. Uh, You know, after he sees how the XBs are being reclaimed, he says to Hugh, what you're doing is good. There's no need for it to be perfect. After all these years, you're showing what the Borg are underneath their victims, not monsters. Different way of looking at the Borg. And again, back to what we said a minute ago, Picard felt the need to be perfect in his Romulan evacuation plan. So maybe he is learning a little bit of a lesson there. Yeah. Another uh, strong theme is Picard and Seven talking. They talk, they have some pretty heart to heart talks more than once and particularly about their humanity. Mm-hmm. And we, we discover that neither feels they've really completely regained their humanity after being freed from the Borg but they both feel that they're working on it. Seven, particularly, it's interesting to see where she is now as a character. She sees her purpose in life as helping people who have no one else, even if it essentially is vigilante work. And Mm -hmm. and that's why I think Soji's story appeals to Seven in a similar way that Picard's quest appeals to Elnor. Right. I also want to talk a bit about Narek's conflict. He appears to have fallen in love with Soji, To begin with, he was kind of pretending it, I think, uh, because he was trying to manipulate her to get information from her. But it does seem that real feelings have developed. I agree. But he is so duty-bound, so indoctrinated by the Jatvash doctrine that he feels he has no choice but to kill her once he gets the information from her. And I've I've been wondering, is Narek essentially a fairly low-level operative 
Or has he also been exposed maybe through mind mills to the prophecy? And, and that why, that's why it's so deeply ingrained in him. I can see in the Jat Vash, maybe not everyone who's in the Jat Vash mm. having had that experience either in person or through mind mills, but I can see it as a way, just like Commodore O used it on Agnes, I can see mm -hmm. it as a way to to ingrain the doctrine in them. And I'm not sure that later episodes are going to answer that question, but it'd be interesting to know how much Narek knows and how much is just doctrine that he's been trained to. You know, it would explain his following through with killing, or at least attempting to kill Soji, in spite of the fact that it seems like it's very difficult for him. You know, if he had been exposed to that prophecy, it would be kind of like Agnes killing Maddox. That was yeah. extremely difficult for her. You know, so he may he may have seen it, or he may just, you know, if you grow up in a culture, you hear nothing but the education, the training, the inculcation that AIs are evil and they have to be eliminated whenever encountered. You know, don't know. It's hard telling. It's hard telling about him. Yeah. Well, we've got some final thoughts here, and it surprised me to see Picard develop uh, such a strong bond with Elner. I mean, it seemed to me from his days on the Enterprise that Picard doesn't really like children. And Zani tells Elnor that he still doesn't. So I'm not exactly sure why Picard, you know, likes Elnor so much. He clearly does. I mean, he seems to be like a father to him. That puzzled me. I don't think it's so much that Picard doesn't like children. In fact, in the in the pilot episode, Encounter at Farpoint, what does he tell Will Riker? I think he more tells him he doesn't understand them. Mm. Um, and so I think that is why he is uncomfortable around children. And young yes. children can also be kind of unpredictable, too. Uh, and Picard likes order in his life. But in the episode Disaster, in which like everything falls apart and people are trapped all over the ship, Picard is trapped in a turbo lift with three children and actually gets along with them pretty well. They, they work together as a team pretty well to get out. And my perspective is he, he did that largely by treating them as adults. And yes, children are children, but I think children tend to appreciate it when you take them seriously. Maybe not treat them adults in every way, but don't just treat them as children. And so I think that is the point. It's more a question of comfort or discomfort as opposed to disliking because he hasn't been around children growing up. Yeah. He went off to, to Starfleet Academy and has been on ships. And the Enterprise D was the first time there were kids around him in much of his career. I'm also confused about the details of Maddox's lab, and I'm going to have to watch really carefully through the rest of the episodes. The stormy planet with red moons that mm -hmm. Soji saw in her vision when she believed she was a child, it seems to me that's probably the lab that Tal Shiar destroyed. But then why didn't the Romulans know where it was if that's the lab they destroyed? Right. And if it <laughs> wasn't the lab they destroyed... When they eventually, in future episodes, get to the planet where the synths are, there are no electrical storms there. And so I'm not right. Not having rewatched the episodes after we're talking about this week yet, I, I need to watch carefully and try to figure out how the writers are explaining that or whether it's just a, just a plot hole. Yeah, that's pretty puzzling. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm, I'm wondering about that now myself. I, I have some more thoughts about Picard and in particular his... This transformation he undergoes in the impossible box with regard to his feelings about the Borg and 
XBs. It just, to me, it seems very rapid. You know, at the beginning of the episode, Girardi says that the XBs on the artifact might have changed because he's not looking forward to going back. But he says, Picard replies to her, he just completely dismisses that possibility. He says they don't change, they metastasize. But by the end of the episode, he's changed his mind completely. Um, I mean, in, that's in, pretty fast. And just expand on that. In what way has he changed his mind? He certainly was disconcerted when he first showed up on the board ship. And yeah. Nobody else was around. He was, yeah. he was freaking out. But yeah. how, by the end of the episode, how has he changed his mind? Well, he says that the XBs are victims, not monsters. So he, he seems at the end of the episode. So he seems to have realized that assimilated people can change. Whereas at the beginning of the episode, he seems to say that they can't, even if they are ex-Borg. But something else just occurred to me. I mean, he, it seems like he should know this already, you know, just from his personal experience. And given what he knows about Seven of Nine, they're both XBs. And, and granted, they agree that they're not fully human since they, they've been simulated, but he surely doesn't think of them as being anywhere close to being Borg, right? I mean, they've changed greatly uh, since they were liberated from assimilation. I'm not sure that Picard sees himself as a victim of the Borg. I think he feels significant guilt that he was not able to fight back better. Oh, that's uh, true. Leading to the destruction of 39 starships at Wolf 359 and and thousands of lives. So I'm not sure he has seen himself as, as a victim, even though... As a practical matter, he should, but that again, that is part of his complexity and part of his regaining his humanity, maybe. Uh, I'm also interested in what we're learning about Borg queens in this episode and Mm -hmm. the status, the situation, what a Borg queen is, is muddled, and it always has been. Uh, and it's made no more clear in the impossible (laughs) box. In the best of both worlds, we're essentially told that the queen is just a manifestation of the Borg group consciousness. Every time we've seen a Borg queen, and Borg queens have only been played by two actresses, by the way, but they've always been made up in costume to look as identical as possible. Not just the same costuming and makeup, but essentially the actresses' faces were similar in that. But Picard here shows us that the queen has a private chamber and, and a way to evacuate a damaged chip. Now, if the queen is simply a random drone kind of selected to be a mouthpiece, number one, why is this mouthpiece always from the same species? And why does the queen need to evacuate? There, there are hoops you could jump through to rationalize it. In fact, I have a, an idea. But in reality, the Borg queens that we've seen across many episodes and movies and print publications and that, what the queen is changes in accordance with the needs of the plot. They are not as consistent as they should be. So they're kind of making this up as they go along, you think? Sort of, sort of, and hoping we don't notice. Um, <laughs> I, mean, I seemed, I remember my brother when First Contact came out, uh, he thought that the the very idea of a Borg queen was antithetical to the nature of the Borg. Every 
uh, you know, Borg subsumes is subsumed to the collective. Yeah. So how in what's how does a queen make sense? Well, and in in the first contact movie, Data asks that question about the hierarchy of the Borg, and and the Queen says there there isn't one. You know, mm -hmm. you're you're I don't remember the exact words, but but words to the effect of you're assuming a, a disparity or a difference that doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. But here we have queens that need to evacuate ships when they're falling apart. So don't don't know about that. Yeah, I'm I'm gonna. Bring us back to Picard again, Michael. <laughs> still, still. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I've been wondering about, you know, his visit to Vashti and his discussion with Elnor. Now, it seems to me, you know, back on La Serena, Rafi knows about Elnor and Picard tells her that he needs to go to Vashti because he may never pass this way again. That's what he says. Now, that suggests to me not merely that he's looking for a free blade, but that he wants to see someone there. It could be Zani, but I think it's more likely that he wants to see Elnor. And this is maybe the only chance he'll ever get to do that. But why not just tell Elnor that? I mean, he tells Elnor that he wants him to join his cause. You know, why not say that he just wanted to see him one last time? Um, it's just kind of difficult for me to imagine someone who is that uncomfortable with talking about his feelings. You know? So do you think Picard had that idea before arriving of recruiting Elnor? Or did he not even know that Elnor had done the, the warrior the warrior monk training and, and that was a that was a last minute rationalization for Picard? Oh, it could have been a last minute rationalization. No, he, he I, I think it's clear that before he arrives at Vashti, he does he just doesn't know what what happened to Elnor. I mean he seems to think that some more suitable place was found for him. And he's surprised maybe to find that that hasn't occurred. He's surprised by a lot of things on Vashti. And, and maybe maybe he's wanting to go there to confirm that a suitable place was found for him. And if not, that he could rescue him. That's the way Zani put it. I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to think through this. Yeah. So again, <laughs> it tells me that Picard doesn't dislike kids, even though that's what's said. That in a way he kind of likes them, but mm -hmm. well, he but definitely he, likes he's, Elnor. He's he's uncomfortable. He's uncomfortable and doesn't really know how to interact with them often. You know, as I said earlier, the, these these three episodes are interesting. They sort sort of serve as the middle act of a play, and Nepenthe next is almost like what happens at the front of the stage when the curtains are closed for set change. There's an mm -hmm. interlude in front of the curtains. And then the curtains open and we get into the, the final three episodes of, of the story arc. And it's interesting to me that TV series today with extended story arcs, with season-long story arcs, are not often structured this way. I mean, it's a progressive thing, step by step by step, yeah. but there aren't dividing lines like, like we see here. So it's just an interesting, as before they started writing scripts, they plotted out the season. And you know, and they had they had outlines of each each episode, and it's interesting that they that they divided it they divided it this way to me. Yeah. Well, does that? I guess that brings uh, this particular podcast to a close. Yeah. Good conversation. Yeah, I agree. So the Star Trek Academy is coming back in a couple of weeks to talk about Nepenthe. Now we're mostly looking back at Picard in groups of three episodes. That's what we've been doing so far, but. Nepenthe is so strong and steeped in Trek lore that we're going to consider it on its own. So we invite you to rewatch along with us 
and join us for our uh, comments next time. You can also watch our Twitter feed for announcements. That's at Trek underscore Academy. And if you're listening to a newly released podcast episode, we'll see you in a couple of weeks. Or if you're listening later, we'll see you after your next click. So thanks for joining us.